Queensland has been all but closed off to the rest of the country for most of the past six months, but that hasn't diminished its appeal as a holiday destination, I mean, we all want what we can't have, right, and certainly hasn't stopped people wanting to move there. In today's episode, we're going to find out what's happening on the ground in the Brisbane property market, who's buying there, how they're buying, and what they're buying. There needs to be a realignment of you either need to be around 850 to get a good quality investment there, or we need to be looking at another area if you can't do that. So it's, it's really important for people not to get set in their own minds without local knowledge and without the understanding of the implications of, of choosing a suburb and a price range at the same time um, and, and not really understanding what they can and can't get for that, that price in that suburb. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au I'm joined today by Megan Wells, buyer's agent and principal of Property Pursuit, which is based in the inner Brisbane suburb of Paddington. Megan is also my Home Buyer Academy co-founder, and we've been working together over the past few months to create an online course and mentoring program for first home buyers, which we're both very excited about. Megan also has a property management business, and we'll be discussing what's happening in that space too. And I'm particularly keen to understand which segments have had the highest and lowest vacancy rates. Great to chat as always, Megan. Thanks for coming. Hello. <laughs> now you told me a week ago that inquiry has taken off. Where oh, it's just gone through the roof, Veronica. Um, and and I know that we're not the only ones. You know, as a buyers agency, we're not the only ones seeing this increase in buyer activity. Uh, it's a really interesting time in the market, and I've probably only seen this level of inequity between the demand from buyers and the supply of property. This, this really unequal equation probably four, four times in the last 17 years. Um, and when we see this, this is what really starts that upward pressure on prices. Yeah, because, I mean, of course, Brisbane didn't experience the boom that Sydney and Melbourne experienced in that sort of very famous five years between 2012-2017. Are you sort of seeing signs that you might be poised for one? Yeah, I, look, I always say that Brisbane is a bit, if you think of, you know, use analogy of, of horses, um, Sydney and Melbourne are like these, you know, racing geldings that just go hell for leather for a while and then they break down and <laughs> the market comes <laughs> off. Whereas Brisbane's a bit more like a Clydesdale, you know, it just clods, clods along, <laughs> pretty steady. It really doesn't have any of those significant ups and dramatic drops in prices like we see in, in Sydney and Melbourne. So there's a bit more consistency and, and steadiness in the way that Brisbane grows over time. Um, we we tend to see these little green shoots of could this be the next boom every now and then, but you know something always said the X factor almost always seems to come in as Brisbane starts to heat up. You know in February there was a huge amount of demand and there was a lot of transactions and a, and a lot of um, uh, you know of that green shoots of upward pressure on prices, and then COVID hit. Uh, so I think what we're seeing is just that pent-up demand that has been unsatisfied in the period between when demand really started to take off and now that people have had that period of time where, you know, everyone was waiting to see what was happening with jobs and the economy and, and, and where things were going to go, they've all kind of rushed back into the market. Uh, and on top of that, we now have um, our beautiful southern cousins <laughs> who, as you said, have discovered the beauty of being in Queensland, and that is we can shut the border <laughs> and keep ourselves keep ourselves safe, and uh, and also enjoy the sun while we're doing it. So th there's a there's this pent up demand that wasn't satisfied earlier in the year, plus this new demand that really is starting to skyrocket uh, from Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, as people are starting to realise that they can actually work from home, which means that they don't have to have an incredibly high-paying job in Brisbane. They can commute 
to um, to their jobs and work from home the other days. Although, uh, well, I mean, I've been hearing anecdotally that people are uh, keeping their Sydney-based or Brisbane, uh, sorry, or Melbourne-based jobs and actually moving to Brisbane and yes. working completely remotely. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're seeing. Are you, are you, uh, because we don't have a lot of those higher-paying executive-level jobs up here. We don't have a lot of headquarters or internationally-based organisations, and that really has been, you know, in my view, that has been the major thing that has stunted um, significant growth in Brisbane house prices because we don't get that influx of of um, higher-earning individuals and families and households. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at the investment fundamentals of a, of a location, obviously you've got to look at you know employment opportunities, incomes, uh, you know the general economics of the of the area, all those sort of feed into that, but also population. So I guess all the, all those arrows are pointing in the right direction, i.e., that you don't you're not geographically limited uh, in in order to be able to earn good incomes or mm. be employed. Um, so that that is rather interesting. Do, is it much of a knee jerk? Are you finding that that people are because, of course, the borders have been shut and in order mm. to go and look at a property, you need to quarantine for 14 days. Um, <laughs> are people buying sight unseen? Yes, and it scares the bejeebas out of me. It just It's frightening to think that there are people who are buying, and we're talking two, three, five million dollar properties, based on the agent's listing information and photos and video walkthroughs. Now that I, I'm, you know, we, we buy sight unseen for, for people on a regular basis, whether they be expats overseas or people interstate, but we're engaged by the buyer and we're representing their interests and we're looking for all the issues and revealing them and making sure that the, the buyer is really, really well aware of everything that could be wrong or right with that property. But if you're relying solely on an agent to um, reveal all about a property, it's a really different environment in in brisbane there is very little seller disclosure and i know this makes you laugh your head off when you <laughs> whenever i talk about this but there it is it is it is the ultimate KVM tour so the buyer has to do their investigations there is no um rely you cannot rely at all on the seller or the agent to reveal anything about the property and and what that what that means is you have to know what questions to ask, who to ask, um, how to interpret the information, how to dive in a little bit deeper, what effect that will have on you and the property and your livability and your potential for growth and um, what might be happening in the area. So if you're relying on the agent, who whose fiduciary obligation it is to represent the seller and to sell the property for the highest price, that is their legal obligation. If you're relying on them to reveal all about a property and you don't know what questions to ask, you are not going to know all of the information about the property and the area and the issues and the livability and the neighbourhood um, and, and what might be built behind you or beside you. Now, I have to say it's sort of interesting because when I was filming the show and we were buying property around the country and I was pretty blessed really because I knew obviously New South Wales legislation back to front uh, when it comes to buying property. And, and Bryce, however, had worked, he'd operated in Queensland, mm. also in WA and in Victoria. So mm. I could sort of lean on his knowledge of those areas and didn't have to worry too much. And it, it it didn't ever seem to make sense to me. And he used to look at New South Wales and said, that doesn't make sense to me. But obviously mm. you and I have put together this course for first home buyers and we've gone through the difference in legislation in different state states. State. Yeah. And, and I have to say... I, because you've always said this, oh, we don't have much disclosure. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, it's the same. Surely can't be that (laughs) different. Um, And I have to say when we went through that, specifically on the East Coast, I mean, you know, Victoria and New South Wales, New South Wales probably has the highest level of disclosure. Victoria has Victoria's up there, yeah. A fairly good level, but there's still loads that buyers do not get disclosed and do not realise that they need to know in New South Wales, and that's with a high level of disclosure. I was shocked at how little the vendor needs to disclose in Queensland. And honestly, I am amazed anybody would buy without a buyer's agent because, <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> oh, different. The process is so different. The need to, to um, research and un- unveil and do due diligence is so vastly different to buying in Sydney and Melbourne. And our clients give us that feedback all the time. Yeah, and so therefore anyone buying from a southern state, I mean, it's bad enough in your, like the Sydney side 
client, for instance, would think, oh, I bought a property once or twice in my life. I know what I'm doing. Um, mm, and mm. then, and no. they're bad. No, exactly. No. <laughs> it's bad you enough. everything you think you know. <laughs> yeah. It's bad enough if you're buying in the same state that, or the same city that you bought before. But when you apply that same sort of, I know what I'm doing to buying in Queensland, it's <laughs> like, it's another planet. And just to give it, to give it, just to give an example, in Victoria and New South Wales, the seller has to disclose there's a thing called a, a title certificate or um, or deposited plan, right? Deposited plan is a good example. And what that is, it's not a survey. It's basically saying though that you know, in the in the plan of the neighbourhood, this bit of land and and what's on it is what you're buying. You don't have to declare that in Queensland. Like, you know, it's one of the solicitor searches. Yeah, which is done after the contract. Do they have to do it? Uh, yeah, well, the solicitor has to confirm, the solicitor is required to get you to confirm that that is the piece of land that you're purchasing. But it's after yeah. you've purchased it, right? It's after you've got the contract on it. And, so, and what if it isn't? Like what if it actually, you go, no, hang on a minute, no, it's um, square and, and that one's triangle. <laughs> like what happened? <laughs> What's the recourse? The bound, it means that the fences haven't been built on the boundaries and you have no recourse. No recourse, and I think that um, unless you re realign the the fences to the boundaries, so so very very few people do um, survey plans in, mm. in when they're purchasing, um, which means that you're relying on the location of the fences to be accurate, um, and and we all know that that's not going to be the case. Mm. Uh, and I've seen people who have, sadly, and I I can think of a specific example in Red Hill uh, where the neighbours had built a shed that encroached on this particular property. It wasn't one that we purchased, but I, I, I was asked for some advice from the people who were purchasing the, the block that had the encroachment on it. So a shed was built on uh, and the fence line was then run behind the shed. So the block that these people were purchasing, there was actually another oh, about 80 centimetres by 40 metres um, that the fence needed to be moved over but the shed was there. So there was this whole palaver around, you know, relocating the shed and realigning the boundaries and getting the survey done and all that sort of stuff. But they only found that out after they'd purchased and they went to put a pool in. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and, and it could go the other way too. It could be that you have a, a, a piece of, uh, or an improvement or a shed or a part of the house or a carport that encroaches on the neighbour's house and you would have to make good or remedy that if uh, someone was to buy and, and do a survey. So it's it's quite alarming. I mean that that is a risk in New South Wales too, but certainly not to that greater extent. So so that sort of speaks to this idea of buying sight unseen purely on the basis of what the agents, the mm. sales agent is is telling you. And also, you know, I've spoken um, to. And there's people. no recourse. There, yeah. there's, if if there is, You're so an agent can't misrepresent misrepresent a property. Um, so if you ask specific questions and they know the answer and they haven't given you all that answer is available to them, the owner has told them, and they don't reveal that to your specific question, that's misleading. However, if you don't ask the question, they don't have to tell you anything. And also how do you prove that they knew it anyway? I mean, like, so it's it's a difficult path to go down, but yeah, absolutely it's about knowing the questions to ask and most buyers just don't know what they don't know. So how would they know? Mm, you know, yeah. Uh, and then what are they going to do with the answer? Oh God! So How and, and, interpret it? Mm. and it's mortifying to think that people are spending, you know, like millions of dollars on property um, without having someone independent look at it. Yeah. So, so <laughs> obviously, with with little supply and um, increased demand, as you say, there's upward pressure on houses. But I'm presuming this is not across the board. I, I, I mean, the unit market no, is talking been... about yeah, yeah, units. Yeah, yeah. We, we we know that there's still a strong supply there, and um, you know that that's typically the product of interstate investors and first home buyers. They, they because of the affordability factor. Um, so, so that demand is probably really being driven only by first home buyers in the apartment market at the moment. So there, there is downward pressure on, uh, or, or there's certainly no upward pressure because in, in, there's not multiple offers and multiple people competing for apartments. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's potentially what could on the surface look like good buying opportunities at the moment. But a good price on a bad property still is not a good investment. <laughs> no, there's there's no bargains on bad properties. 
And look, there's you know, what you pay for it in the future. Well, that's yeah, um, yeah, bargains. There's a whole issue there at, at the COVID cliff that everybody's talking about. Um, and I would suspect, well, because I mean, let's say I haven't been to prison for a while. Nobody has. If you don't live there, um, but it's what? How beautiful. many? We are free to do oh, what we want. Stop it! But how many? How many cranes <laughs> are still in the in the sky though? There's really not many at the moment. And it's interesting you say that because uh, you, you remember Sir Joe in the. So Joe, when he was asked, you know, how's the economy doing, he used to look out the window and count the cranes and say, yeah, pretty good. This <laughs> <laughs> yes, is his analysis. But there aren't many cranes in the sky at the moment um, and certainly not uh, a large amount. So a number of approved apartment complexes have been shelved, uh, but those approvals still sit there. So at some point in time they may come to the market and continue to, to add supply to the market. Yeah, so I guess, uh, you know, from a property point of view, less cranes is a good thing, um, <laughs> but not for the economy <laughs> potentially. Yeah, well, there's other stimulus for, for infrastructure projects that is probably soaking up some of that construction industry supply. If you're getting, you know, increased demand from uh, interstate and it, it's I'm presuming owner-occupiers, not investors. Absolutely, is, yeah. yeah. So we, we would normally run... In, in Property Pursuit, uh, our client base normally runs a, around 45% investor, 55% owner-occupier. Mm-hmm. At the moment, uh, we're sitting at 85% owner-occupier. Yeah. Uh, yep. So we've got the same number of clients that we would normally work with, but they're, they're just the, the investors just aren't strong in the market at the moment. Yeah, and it's pretty much the same in my business as well. I mean, um, in, interestingly enough, in my business, the investors that I've got are pretty much all cash buyers. So, you know, yeah. it's just interesting to see. I've never seen so much um, uh, cash wanting mm-hmm. property, if you get my drift. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's an interesting change. Um, so It's interesting. So have they, have they uh, sold out of stocks to um, do that or is it just they're seeing an opportunity to – it's invest. a combination. This everyone has a different. Um, you know, I've got one one client that absolutely is sold out of um, shares. Mm. Um, he's decided to do that. I, I think he was being a bit cynical and said, "Right, well, look, the, the share market's full of newbies, and um, they've all mm. Mm. up a bit. I think I might just um, time to time to shift into something that he perceives as being safer. And obviously, if you're going to do that, it has to be good quality property. Otherwise, um, mm. you know, you can go from one volatile situation to another yeah Yeah. but um what i'm interested though is is from out of towners i mean we did the suburb trends episode we we uh, interviewed kent lardner for for october Mm. we talked about a um a suburb sort of in brisbane the outskirts of brisbane called wentworth point right have you ever heard of it sorry wellington wellington point Wellington Mm. Point. you're making up suburbs now i'm referring to this only because of and i know this is way out of your area but Mm. this is you know the idea that kent was looking at it as being potentially on the um on the cusp of maybe some price growth because uh inventory is very very low and um the actual there's not a lot of rental um uh there's not a lot of days on market for rental properties there so Mm. These sort of factors a bit of a pre a, a predictive indicator for um price growth. So we were talking about that. It's a fair way out of town, and, mm. and I wonder would would Sydney siders and Melbournians look at a place like that and say, "Oh man, that's fantastic!" You know, I would love to live there. Where a Brisbaneian may not particularly value a place like that. I mean, how? I mean, that, yeah, that's right yeah, on it's the a good observation, Veronica, because that that is what happens. The housing style out in those areas like Thornlands and Wellington Point, it it appeals to um, uh, southerners because they're they're a newer style of property, so largely brick and tile. Whereas closer to the city, it's much more traditional Queensland of timber and tin. So so those sorts of areas appeal because the the housing style feels very familiar. Um, they understand it and and they can apply their their sudden thinking to those types of properties. But also it looks on paper to be close to the city comparative to Sydney and, and Melbourne. Mm. So when, when you're thinking about a commute of, you know, maybe 50, 55 minutes yeah. in peak hour um, from there to the city, that's not a big deal if you're going to be on the Bayside and, and these suburbs that we're talking about are on the Bayside. 
that again appeals because oh wow we can we can be on the beach you know close to this not too far from the city the commute's not going to be that bad but these are beaches in in brisbane because we have morton island that sits off the coastline that stops the the sand and the waves coming in so it is it is a bay and it is largely mud flats not sand <laughs> so so what what constitutes bayside living in brisbane um is not what you and i would consider to be beachside living or um even being on the river it's, mm. it's not as attractive so um even up through um shorncliffe and redcliffe going north uh, again only maybe a 50 55 minute commute to the cbd during peak hour um, there is a bit more of a sandy beach along there, starting to get a little bit, not wave activity, but there's a bit more sand up there. Um, they're nice areas. And, and when we have this influx from the southern states, often the prices in those areas have a spike. Mm. And that spike is as people come in, they think this is bargain territory here. Yes. Uh, and, and they purchase and they, they get in there and six months later they are pulling their hair out. The commute is horrific. Um, people just, and they end up saying, I can't live out here anymore. The attractiveness isn't outweighing, uh, you know, the, the, um, the commute and, yeah. and um, not being around people like us uh, because they're, they're generally um, not your higher income type suburbs mm. and, and they sell and move in. And, and that, that rapid turnover often then brings the price growth back. So they have a, a little bit of a spike as demand is there, but then things come back because all of this supply comes back on after people realise that's not really where they want to live at all. And this is the important thing, obviously, about um, local knowledge, and, mm. and I've banged on about this for many years. If you are going to make a major change, a tree change, sea change or an interstate change, you know, go and live in the place and find out really if you had that local knowledge where you'd really want to live because it might not be the same as um, you know, you think it is. And and so the problem, though, that leads into another problem, and, and that is a sort of a high-level rentals are pretty few and far between, right, at the moment. Mm, absolutely. And, and a big, big part of it is that we've seen a massive repatriation of Australians from who were working overseas who have moved back to Australia and have moved back into their own homes. So yeah. a lot of executive-level rentals are not investment properties. They are homes that people have retained while they work and live somewhere else for a period of time, and they may have had a much longer-term view of how long they'd be away from the property. But with everything that's gone on and a lot of people returning to Australia to um, you know, whether jobs have been affected or they just simply want to get back to the safety of really one of the most amazing countries in the world, that, that those executive rentals have largely left the property market and we've certainly seen it um you know in that thousand dollars a week plus range mm. uh, a lot of those people have moved back into their homes now will they go and work overseas again i, I would think that you know if, if you're that way inclined and that's where your work is and that's where you can maximize your income earning capacity for a period of time then that may return but it's going to be a long time before we see those executive rentals come back onto the, the rental market yeah, it's interesting, and and to a lesser degree, I've sort of heard this similar story and anecdotally in Sydney um, that you know some of that that level of um, rental property has been taken out of the market, mm. so it does make it more challenging for people, you know, looking for a family home if they are renting. Um, yes. Yeah, and like generally speaking in the rental market, what are vacancies doing? I mean, because obviously um, there's a lot of talk, well, certainly in the CBD in Sydney, for instance, the vacancy rate's gone through the roof, units, there's there's a lot of, of stock, Airbnb stock, the, the overseas mm, students, all that sort of stuff. Is yeah, those yeah. sort of drivers um, impacting the Brisbane um, property, the rental market? I think there's a couple of different sub-markets and, and let's separate them out. Apartments, yeah, they're doing okay. Uh, there's there's still a lot of supply. Um, as you say, the students, the international students aren't here at the moment, so there's not a lot of demand for those more entry-level apartments. Um, and when I say entry-level, maybe up to $400, $450 a week. Uh, so vacancy on those, um, we don't manage a lot of those ourselves, but when I look at the supply that's on realestate.com, you've got a bit to choose from. So there's not a lot of upward pressure on, on uh, rentals in the apartment market. But when you move into the inner 
and and when I say you know let's talk 10 k's from the 12 k's from the CBD that's sort of your inner middle um houses in that location we have found and I'm talking quality versus rubbish um we've been seeing multiple we've been seeing large numbers of inspections multiple applications and offers above asking price it people trying to secure properties and what tenants are telling us is that they have so little choice at the moment that they will take anything that's good they're prepared to put money on the line to secure it now in Queensland it is illegal to conduct any kind of um, upward negotiation from a from an asking price and you certainly can't put people directly in competition with each other but there's nothing to stop a person from offering more than the asking price if they want to secure a rental and that's what we're seeing in the market at the moment so our properties uh, that we're managing which are all investment grade properties um, and all properties that we've purchased on behalf of people we're having no vacancy so there's no time between when one tenant moves out and the next one moves in with very few exceptions, there are a couple where prices price might be a little bit of an issue, uh, and in most cases we're either getting the same rent or an increase in rent from uh, what has been you know from 12 months ago when the last tenants moved in. So good property, well located, you know, just all the fundamentals again. Good property, well located, good facilities around it, well maintained. Uh, those are the ones that people are really putting themselves on the line to secure. Interesting. I mean, certainly there's there's um, downward pressure on rents in Sydney still, you know, at the sort of the more popular price bracket, shall we say. But given that the stock, so, you know, the Queenslander stock, right, so you, a lot of weatherboard and tin, as you say, mm. would you say, wooden tin, timber and tin, timber and tin. Mm. Um, yeah. and maintenance is is obviously an issue for those sorts of problems. Let's face it, if you have a house, maintenance is an issue. It's but part of home ownership. Yes, it is. <laughs> but particularly with timber and tin, you know, there's uh, a perception, whether it's true or not, that um, you have to be extra vigilant, obviously, regarding pests. Um, and do you find, though, that that is the sort of stock that investors typically like to buy when they're sitting and forgetting? You know, a lot of investors like to buy and not worry too much about it. Mm-hmm. You know, is is that really the sort of stock that you are recommending to an investor to buy? Absolutely, because if an investor is coming to us with a capital growth strategy, and usually that strategy is set in consultation with their financial advisor, you know, we we help select we select the asset, but the the strategy itself is set by their advisor um, as part of their overall goals and plans. And if capital growth is the strategy, and that that's um, you know we, we don't have a high yield in mm. Brisbane, it's, it's about 3.6% currently. Which, well, that's you know, high compared rates, to Sydney. <laughs> yeah, with interest rates as they are, you know, mm. a lot of people are uh, you know, sort of neutral um, from an income perspective after costs, which is, you know, we haven't seen that for decades. Um, mm. But if they're coming with a capital growth strategy, then the properties that are in most demand from owner-occupiers, so your future buyer being, yep. uh, you know, preferred, preferably an owner-occupier, not an investor, uh, are the timber and tin character houses well located good piece of land nice aspect good layout you know functional flow uh, th- those investment fundamentals those 36 investment fundamentals that apply to Brisbane uniquely it is generally a timber and tin house now the exception to that is perhaps where um, there's been a big block of land you know an 810 square meter block of land that has been split into two and a modern or you know low set brick or uh, you know, a more contemporary sort of style house that is still timeless and has all of the right attributes um, from a, an individual property point of view. If we can find one of those in a well-established character area, then those properties tend to perform quite well as well. So mm. they're quite good for investors because there is a lower maintenance um, equation. The yield is quite good. Generally, you get a, a, a slightly better return on the more modern places. Um, and they have, you know, everything's in the right place. Queenslanders, everything's kind of not in the right place. They've got yeah. a quirkiness and, you know, their own unique personalities and and, um, and people just accept it. That's just how it is. But yeah. um, that, that would be the exception. So if, if growth is the strategy, then often to buy in, in low-density character areas, you're going to mostly find it's a, a character Queensland made of timber and tin. 
Because on that, I mean, so many, well, so much of what has driven some of the the parts of the Brisbane property market over recent years has been this idea of affordable investment and, a, and definitely a, a push from a lot of, dare I say it, buyers agents buying in southeast Queensland in particular um, mm. and parts of southeast Queensland. And of course, Brisbane, the urban sprawl, it's getting wider and wider, isn't it? Mm. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any shortage of land. Um, you know, it's, it's Brisbane's pretty much joined the Gold Coast, hasn't it? <laughs> sort of. Yeah, there, there are tracks that are still to be released, but mm. a lot of them are actually owned by some of the bigger developers. So you know those are going to be developed and released at some point in the next 50 years. Um, and 50 years sounds like a long time, but, you know, it's really, it's really not. If you have a continuous release of property, then that supply is always going to affect your property if you're in an area that's close to um, a greenfield site. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. We talk about it all the time on the podcast here. We do, we talk about, you know, scarcity. We talk about avoiding overdevelopment and, you know, we talk about Melbourne being 100 k's wide and Sydney just the <laughs> continued. isn't it? It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It just it goes on and on and on. And, and, and obviously Sydney's, you know, pushed further west and further southwest and northwest. Um, you know, we've we've talked about Brisbane and, and Logan and then pushing up towards the Sunshine Coast and and this idea of, you know, these that oh these areas have got to go well because of all this building and yet, you know, there's been whole areas where there's been nothing happening or negative growth for, for the last decade. So it I, th- I guess the fundamentals are exactly the same in Brisbane as they are elsewhere and mm. the idea that there are two or three or even four or five or six speed markets. And so I'm interested from your point of view that, you know, where do you see, I mean, and also Brisbane has a, a, a river that sort of snakes around. So I can easily <laughs> visualise sort of inner Sydney and inner Melbourne, but I can't easily visualise inner Brisbane. So mm. in terms of those sort of blue chip areas, I mean, well, how do you, how do you determine <laughs> what is you know, what, great? Yeah, is that, yeah. Is that the question? That is the question. I'm like, I look at a map and I'm like, wow, my head just gets wrapped in knots. Yeah, that's like me looking at Sydney. Where am I going? <laughs> easy. We've got a CBD in a harbour running through it. It's easy. <laughs> so, do you know, people who are born in Brisbane have this real thing about whether they're a north sider or a south sider. But and how do you work it out even? <laughs> not, not. Oh, stop it. There's only a couple of places you can cross the river, honestly. It's yeah. easy. Right. Uh, thou shalt <laughs> not cross that river if you were born on the north side. And and you know, it's funny because I was um, I was born in New South Wales, so I come mm. with a clean state. I have no preconceived ideas. I live on the north side. I have lived on the south side in the past. Um, but <laughs> to your question, there are 189 mainland suburbs in the Brisbane local government area. And what we've done over time and, and we continue to collect, evaluate and, and reassess is we look at every one of those suburbs at least annually, if not more, depending on you know what new projects are announced, what's happening with infrastructure and, and so forth. And we assess each of those suburbs uh, against our high-level criteria, so more our macro-level criteria, and there are at currently 88 suburbs that we will purchase in that have investment grade, um, uh, you know, whether it be around uh, the demographics, the transport, the facilities, the density, the zoning, um, all of those sorts of things come into that higher-level assessment. So of those 88 um, uh, suburbs, We've then matrixed different property types, so whether it's a freehold house, a townhouse, a unit, um, and, and assessed in those each of those suburbs, what would we buy and in what price ranges would we buy? Now, I'll give you just an example. Uh, Stafford is a suburb that's about seven, six, seven, seven kilometres from the CBD. 
Um, it is a lower income area. A lot of ex-housing commission uh, style properties there. So very simple properties. It has um, a reasonably low median house price. Uh, that is a suburb that up to about $600,000, we would consider a freehold house there. But we certainly wouldn't invest $800,000 in that suburb. So whilst that suburb makes it onto the matrix, it is only in a specific price range that we would purchase in that suburb. Uh, whereas if we were to purchase um, something in Clayfield, uh, we might happily spend up to $1.5, $1.8 million in, in Clayfield for an investor. So it's very specific um, in terms of how we have assessed and choose and and um, uh, have matrixed the different suburbs. And, and that's our guide when we're talking to investors. And so in that, like say looking at say Stafford um, and you've got a, a price cap, so I guess that you've got you talk to clients that have only a budget of six hundred or six hundred fifty thousand, for instance, and say, "Well, this is one of your options." Mm. What what is it in a suburb with those sort of um, demographic characteristics? What what is it? Are you sort of pitching for? Well, ultimately, given its proximity to the to the city, ultimately, um, you know, the prices will rise because of gentrification, because of this, because of that. Um, is that what you're sort of pitching it at, or are you pitching yeah. it? Yeah, yeah so. very much so. So so often people, you know, you and I talk about the three Ps, position, property, price. So mm. often people come to us with a fixed budget, and whether that's a bank-imposed limit on their borrowing capacity or that is simply what they've allocated to that particular um, strategy in their, in their investment portfolio. So if they come to us and say, look, I've got about six fifty to spend, there might be eight. Oh, no, actually, there's probably only about four, four or five suburbs that we would buy a freehold house or you can buy a freehold house in investment quality in Brisbane. So we then talk to them about those, those suburbs and, and what, what we're seeing in those suburbs and why some other suburbs aren't in the mix is that older houses, so I said there's a lot of ex-housing commission in Stafford. Mm. In Brisbane, housing commission is dispersed all the way through. There was there was not particular suburbs that I, were identified as um, as having a higher density of housing commission except Stafford. So Stafford was one of, Stafford and Capera are, are two, two suburbs where there was a high percentage of housing commission. Mm. But the Department of Housing has changed their strategy in the last 10 years, 10 or 12 years, and they're now much, they're now selling off some of the freehold houses in order to create um, and get money to develop more apartments um, in diverse locations. So yeah. when uh, Karina is another one, so there's a number of locations uh, that we identified a, a while ago and those public houses are being sold to private investors and homeowners and those private investors and homeowners are gentrifying and improving and extending and increasing the value of properties in the area. Mm. So that's why um, there's just two examples of a, a dramatic change that is happening over time um, and has continued to happen and that's why we put a price ceiling on, on, how much, yeah, on how much we would pay in those areas. So it is a capital growth strategy um, in, in those areas for those reasons. So the, gentr the slow gentrification. It's interesting though because gentrification is slow and, and this is the thing that a lot of people um, don't realise that when they really see strong evidence of it, it's it's been in the wings often for a decade or so before then, you know, and they're the people that have made that, they've been around and, and made that, that sort of commitment, I guess, into that market and potentially when there's that big upswing because there's usually a point at which there's this quick upswing and mm. and then it then it levels off again, you know, and it's people in it for that. But you have to be in it for a long time to be there ready and waiting because you never know exactly when it's going to kick off. I know yeah. with Marrickville in Sydney, oh, God, you know, I, I sort of looked at that and, and I think that took about 20 years before that upswing. Right. You know, yes. people would have bought and sold twice over in that time, three times <laughs> over sometimes, you know. <laughs> so if you're too early, you're going yeah. to miss it by the time you need to exit and divest. Yeah. <laughs> And and if you're too late, then you've missed out on the growth. But as long as the growth is still there, you might might still um and and continue. So you don't really want to be on the back of the massive increase, but maybe it's then when it's starting to. And you and I hate hotspots, hate hotspotting, mm. hate the concept of it because you often have a really big kick, and then if the fundamentals aren't there, it just drops off again. 
Well, particularly and not really prepared for that. Yeah, and particularly if, if, of course, the hotspot is just fueled by speculation from investors, and it's like mm. it's actually it's like a Ponzi scheme. It's it's <laughs> you know, they're actually feeding them, you know, the frenzy, and it's like there's no actual substance to it, uh, and that's a massive danger with hotspot, mm. of course. Yep. Lots yep, of hot so if it, if it takes and then the demand drops off because that hot spot isn't hot anymore, then mm. the um, degre- de- you know, decrease in prices and, and there's no one there to pick up the pieces. Yes. And also, I mean, this is a thing too, is this is the hot spotting um, makes a little bit of a, I don't know, it's a bit of a mockery of, of buying property because, of course, property is a long-term play and hot spotting is thinking with very short-term view. And so it's like there's an element of luck um, with timing, and mm. it's a, but there's no luck if you buy a good asset, you know. So mm. um, yeah, good it, asset, good location, and you know sometimes it's just bloody boring to isn't buy it? a good <laughs> investment property. People want the you know they want something that they can sprout about at the barbecue. Oh, I invested in this area that's so up and coming. Well, no, mm. no, what? Hey, what? <laughs> Sometimes it's just boring. It's good character. It's good layout. It's good location. It's quality. It's agri quality. Boring, but you know what? Long term, you'll outperform if you get all of those things right. And how boring is that? I love that sort of boredom, you know? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't have a new exciting strategy. Fundamentals and quality. I know, and so then, sort of back to your 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 comment earlier about sort of capital growth strategy. I mean, obviously, I bang on about this, and you know, I know that you obviously agree. So, therefore, we're not going to, you know, wax lyrical about the benefits of capital growth. But it's it's sort of interesting. You sort of said um, that idea of you know people can still cap whatever they might want to spend on an investment but they've got a capital growth investment strategy. And I guess the problem is then often people are choosing their budget arbitrarily mm, mm. without fully understanding the implications of buying, sort of capping it at 600 or 800 or a million or whatever it is that they cap it at, mm. not understanding that if you do buy in a lower um, price bracket and you can't buy an A-grade area or you can't buy an A-grade property as a consequence of that, then fundamentally, yes, you know, you might still get some good growth, but you are losing an opportunity for better growth if you actually looked at the asset first before you set your budget. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and certainly when we're doing a property strategy with investors, it's, it is very much about making sure that we open their minds first so talk about in different price ranges, different properties, how they're performed, what sort of demographic. You know, if someone comes to us and says, I've got $600,000 budget and I want an executive family to rent it, <laughs> there's a disconnect between you know, their thoughts and reality. So there's this big conversation. And we, you know, we have hard conversations with people all the time. But there's a big conversation that needs to be had about how you match your expectations of who your tenant might be um, and, and what the drivers of, of growth and attractiveness to that kind of person. And, and, and you know, probably shouldn't be bought to choose a tenant or to have a certain type of tenant. Um, but the, the conversations in the property strategy meeting are very much about, all right, well, this is this is where your budget sits. These are other types of areas. You know, if someone comes to us and says, look, I really want to buy in um, Cooparoo, you know, I know there's a lot going on with the the, uh, the busway that will go through past there eventually and, and that's going to improve transport to the city. Um, it's being gentrified heavily. There's only a certain um, area that has the higher density and then there's some other character areas in, in Cooparoo. Like everything, you know, there's five different areas of Cooparoo and you've got to find mm. the right area to get growth. Um, but if someone came to us and said, I've got, I've got seven, you know, 650 to 700 to spend in Cooparoo, you're going to buy a B-grade asset in that suburb. So there needs to be a realignment of you either need to be around 850 to get a good quality investment there or we need to be looking at another area if you can't do that. So it's, it's really important for people not to get set in their own minds without local knowledge and without the understanding of the implications of, of choosing a suburb and a price range at the same time. Um, and, and not really understanding what they can and can't get for that that price in that suburb. Yeah, and you already touched on it too, particularly if these investors are coming from interstate. There's that idea of what they think is valuable in property versus mm. what actually is, you know, the local Brisbaneian 
um, mm. is going to value. I'm wondering too. That I mean, buyer, we've, we've got to keep the eye on that future buyer, that future oh, demand, because that's where that capital growth equation comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And so, in the unit space, I mean, there's been a few conversations I've had uh, about Brisbane over the years with various um, people up there, saying that you know the down there's a there is um, a downsizer market. There is a market mm. in the larger apartments, you know, three bed three bedrooms and 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 more. Um, is that still the case? Are you seeing mm. families that, you know, particularly maybe tenants as well, if they're priced out, if they can't find a house to rent, would, you know, is there is there becoming uh, an appreciation for a larger apartment in, in wider, uh, across wider demographics? Yeah, yeah, it's a good point because when we talk apartments, often what we're referring to is the two-bed, two-bath, cookie-cutter type apartment. Um, but, but what you're talking about there is more of, um, either a downsizer and kids have left or maybe they come back irregularly but, um, you know, people don't want to have these big yards look after the pool and so forth. They want to be able to lock up and leave and we will holiday again, although in Queensland we can go anywhere. Um, <laughs> it, it, but, <laughs> uh, there, there, is a, there is a strong market for three, four-bedroom apartments, good size, good layouts and, um in lifestyle precincts. So those those properties are bucking the trend. They are in high demand and the prices are strong um, and they do have the kind of fundamentals that stand them apart from their cookie-cutter kind of cousins that uh, we would expect to see and, and, you know, the proof will be in the pudding because this kind of property isn't really prevalent in Brisbane. It's, it's just starting to become a, a little bit more sought after. Um, but in around those lifestyle precincts, maybe with a river view or a city view, not necessarily right in the city, uh, those properties we certainly see good demand for and those prices are, are holding quite well. Yeah, it is interesting because I think that um, the developers, is the, the quick and dirty turnaround is is really pitching it at investors with negative gearing and first home mm. buyers with all the grants. All the um, grants, you know, and they're, they're heavily encouraged into those new products with the grants and the way that they're structured. Yeah, mortifying, really. It's an alarming, and you and I have both done quite a lot of, you know, research in that area, which is one of the reasons why we're launching home first, your first <laughs> home buyer guide. But, um, but uh, you know, it's my personal vision, basically, that buyers shun that stuff, you know, and they actually put put uh, pressure on developers to build more of the stuff and design more of the uh, the apartments that are actually got, you know, they've got more space and got you better amenity. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Whether yeah. it, you know, that's my vision. High ceilings, you know, that, 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 that beautiful feeling of space and light that comes from higher ceilings. Mm. Um, and that costs more money for the developer to do that and they get less yield in terms of number of apartments, mm. but it can absolutely return a, a good um, price, you know, an increase in value by having high ceilings, good-sized rooms, lots of storage, uh, better parking two rather than one uh, and side by side rather than tandem. So all of these little things make a big difference to a downsizer when they're assessing the livability and the lifestyle aspects of, of an apartment. I think the main problem there is that the real person that benefits from that sort of apartment is the person living in it and then ultimately when they go to sell, the developer unfortunately has, has been able to, um, you know, maximise or make more money uh, by carving up into smaller spaces mm. and hopefully that, you know, that that whole pressure will change, particularly with less investors uh, in the market. But anyway, well, that's a long-term hope. Do yeah, you have there's some beautiful, beautiful, architecturally interesting complexes being built, you know, smaller scale, so mm. often um, maybe on the river around New Farm, uh, full-floor apartments with, uh, with river views, can mm command you know between four and six million dollars that's yep. a lot for an apartment in brisbane yeah but there is demand there for it well it's a lot for apartment in sydney too just for that but interestingly enough um you know i'm look uh, when i looked at a, a full floor apartment in a building uh in sort of on the edge of the city near surrey hills the other day and and this is um it, it was bought off the plan it was an amalgamation of three apartments and oh. it's the, the most terrible um realization of you know so they basically bought it before it was um fitted out so they had opportunity to 
design it and mm-hmm. and organize those rooms and the ways that they could have done so much better job than what they did. Mm-hmm. The bedrooms are orientated towards the big terrace rather than the living area. I mean, it's uh, it's all wrong. And you think, oh shame. my god! Other than the penthouse, it's the only full floor apartment in this building. Mm-hmm. It, such a missed opportunity to do something interesting with it. It's like, oh, really? And disappointment. Yeah, you just think, oh no. But uh, yeah, I mean, they're rare here too. They're they're you know, it's not enough of them being built. But you know, I think that's a, it's a they've got to be built, but they've got to be built well, and they've got to be designed mm. well, and they've got to have a nice outlook and and oh, all those things. And- yes. Now, do you have a property dumbo for us? What's interesting, um, in the current market, we are certainly seeing upward pressure on quality properties. I mentioned that earlier. And and we do have, um, we, we did experience for a client um, an attempt at, at um, doing something that he really shouldn't have done and it had a really awful ramification. So at the moment, um, and how we keep control of, of rapidly rising prices is we keep a register of um, properties that are for sale. Mm-hmm. We do a data analysis on what we believe that property is worth based on previous comparable sales. So that being the comparable sales methodology of, of working out what a property is worth in the current market. Uh, and, and we record that and then we record the actual sales price. That helps us, and this is not just properties we're purchasing, that we're doing this across the marketplace. That gives us real-time data so we're not waiting for, for settlement and registration of information on, on CoreLogic. Core uh, we're actually real-timing it. So that gives us a real indication of what's actually happening with prices. And when we see an increase uh, and consistent increase, not just one-off, not just occasionally, but you know, consistently, if we are saying, oh, that went for a bit more than I thought, mm. then we often find uh, where we're recording this information on, on the spreadsheet that we use, we're starting to see a pattern of what people are prepared to pay as a premium to secure properties in the current market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we're seeing at the moment is um, a pretty consistent story of price increases. So we found this this property, uh, we did the data analysis on it that said it was around the five, uh, 2.5 to 2.57-ish sort of range. Um so that that was a, a lovely house, a good piece of land, a great location, family home, um, suited the client really quite well. So moving into the negotiation, we talked to them about this, this data that we've been collected and why we believed that the property would probably end up selling for around 2.6 and that's where we believed the offer should be. Uh, and, and, you know, you, as a buyer's agent, you know, our job's Veronica, we advise but the client decides. Yep. So we can give them all of the information under the sun, uh, but at the end of the day, they they make that decision as to whether they're buying and at what price. So this this particular um, family decided that because the data said that it was around 2.575 and they wanted to be intelligent purchasers of properties, mm. they wanted to buy it for less than um, someone else might pay. So the <laughs> offer was yeah. 2.52. Mm. So remembering data is 2.55, 2.57, put in the offer, they're cash buyers. So cash is is quite a strong position to be in in a negotiation. It was a multiple offer, so you've got to be quite sharp. You can make offers that are subject to um, conditions in Queensland. It's a very Mm. regular part of the process to to make a conditional offer. But in this case, they made an offer that was not subject to finance, but just subject to building a pest. And that's very, very common. And, yeah. and very few people will buy without that clause. So so the offer um, goes in at 2.52, I think it was. Uh, and there were four other offers and it sold for 2.6. So it actually sold exactly where our analysis of price movement would indicate that it would sell. Mm. Um, and that was a moment they were rocked to their core that they didn't get that property because they really legitimately believed that their offer was based on cash. The cash component was going to get them the, 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 secure them the property. But of the other op- offers, two are cash as well. So yeah. just like what you're saying, there are a lot of cash buyers around at the moment. So you can't rely on that advantage. You still have to pay the price that the property is worth in the current market. And, and they are still kicking themselves and shaking their heads because they could afford to pay 
2.6. Yeah. And were advised to pay 2.6 and they chose a different route. And, you know, that's just in the current market, thinking that you can buy a bargain where there's lack of stock and a lot of other buyers competing with you, that is a dumbo position to take. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? Because the thing is that um, it's a lot of money and obviously having cash, you know, you a lot of people think, well, oh, but the, but the, this, this has got to give me some sort of advantage, surely. Mm, and in other markets it would. <laughs> well, but sometimes though, but I mean I find that too. People say to me, but I'm a cash buyer. I say, yeah, but so the thing is if somebody else has actually got their finance in place and they've got good enough equity, they're not sailing close to the wind, you know, in terms of their LVR, effectively they're a cash buyer too. The fact mm. you can settle um, in two weeks, that might make a difference if someone's mm. really under the pump. But generally speaking, it doesn't really Nobody needs to settle in a shorter period of time than, say, four, four to six weeks is pretty normal. And so the actual advantage of having cash isn't there. But yes, yeah. So it's really sad for them to think, well, I've got myself in this situation. It isn't, you know, I want to make it an advantage, but you're sort of fighting a lone war, aren't you? I mean, you're it's waging a war. Because there's other people that are in the same sort of position. Yeah. But I mean that goes to that goes to negotiation strategy as well, doesn't it? And mm. I know this is a whole other topic, but yeah. <laughs> um, understanding the seller's motivations can can have such a powerful impact on you if you're in a in a multiple offer situation and you can meet the seller's needs in a way that isn't increasing money. And that might be you know, it might be settling in four weeks but letting them rent back for two months until their property is ready to move in or it might be, you know, there are all sorts of other things other than cash that a seller might actually find more attractive. Yes, but um, sometimes and quite often they don't, you know what I mean? So it has to be asked and this is you and I both talk about this in the course as well. It's like, you know, there's the the good questions to ask and, and buyers so often will ask, oh, why is this, why are they selling? And then they think, oh, what am I going to do with the information when the agent says, oh, just to move back to be closer to family. Oh, that doesn't help. Um, yeah. Yeah. Where are their family? Have they purchased? You know, there's so exactly. many other questions that need to be asked after that, that first one, but people largely don't know where to go with it. They don't. But then asking that question, well, what's their ideal settlement date? That's actually really telling. There's so much else that comes with that answer, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's we just such a, a whole course on that, Veronica. We yeah. could, interestingly yeah. enough, we did. <laughs> hey, um, in fact, on that, normally we do the boot camp, and that's after you hang up, and and uh, Chris and I do the boot camp together. But since Chris is, he's actually on holidays, by the way. He's oh, nice. Is he he got out of Sydney. He's in the the Byron Hinchland. How's this oh, for yes. weird though? I went away in the beginning of September. Um, I think I must have stuck it on Facebook where I was staying and he's come back and said, get this, I'm staying exactly the same place in October. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's really weird. So, um, yeah, it's a bit sort of odd. But So I know exactly where he is and it's lovely up there. So, it is um, beautiful. He's yeah. in an space. So we should do the boot camp. Um, and so this is basically, you know, we want to make you a better elephant rider. So this week's elephant rider boot camp, and I think what we should do, I'm just hitting you with it here, Megan. Let's quickly run. Lots of prizes, Veronica. Let's quickly run through the three Ps because you and I run a workshop um, periodically, uh, which is the. In fact, we're going to do one at the end of November. When are we releasing this? Yeah, actually, what I'll do is 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 I'll put the link in the show notes for the workshop mm-hmm. because basically by the time we launch, this is actually really thinking off the top of my head here and not planned, um, we will be running a where to buy workshop. And the where to buy workshop is around, it's not about giving people that, um, you know, the, the, the top 10 suburbs to buy in. It's about taking you through this 3P process that, helps you understand where you need to be buying because it's a complex uh, triumvirate of um, of decision-making, right, that you've got to, if you don't have the budget right, if you don't have the property type right, you can't possibly determine where you need to buy. So let's just quickly run through what those three Ps are, shall we? Yeah, let's do that. Do you want to start? Sure. So we mentioned it earlier in the podcast, um, the, the question around where to buy is is probably the first one that we get as a buyer's agent. And it's it's one that is, there's just no quick, easy answer to that question because each person's situation is so unique. And, and it's very much around um, understanding 
the three major areas that you have to compromise in when you're buying a property, and that's price, position, and the property itself. So property type, the features, the bedrooms, the bathrooms, the layouts, you know, all those sorts of things come into the property side of the equation. So what we do with that workshop, Veronica, is we actually put people in the position of working out what they are and aren't prepared to compromise in in those three areas. But it also opens their minds up to if they did compromise in any one of those three areas outside of their fixed thoughts on what they do and don't want, if they were to compromise, what else would be out there for them? Um, And that's such a powerful process to go through because if you think that you're going to, you know, spend $2 million in um, Ascot and you're quite set on that, but you haven't really explored, well, what would 2.5 give me? Or what if I went to Hendra? Uh, so it's it's actually a process of going through a process of changing your challenging your own thinking to make sure that the assumptions that you're, you've made are based on everything that you can think about, and then you're right, you're on your track, you know you know where to buy. And this is the thing, and I think that a lot of people set, and and so we take, and so I mean, this is the the where to buy workshop is the genesis of that. It's really is in what we call a getting started session in my business of good deeds, and mm-hmm. so we we should do it for clients uh, and do all of the research. Whereas the where to buy we- workshop is teaching them how to do it for themselves, and obviously. It's all about understanding the possibilities for your search before you land on exactly what where it is you're going to be uh, buying, as you're saying there. And so by by going through a very structured way of looking at that, but the very first thing is the budget because some people's budget are fixed. They will just borrow as much as they possibly can. They work out whether they can afford it or not, and then they just go out there and look and, and you know, they're stretched. And mm. there's nothing you can do with that, but you can't add more money to that. You, it is maxed. But what sometimes people do is they will actually – search for the needle in the haystack it's back to you sort of your guy you know the the cash there must be some value in cash and so they might be borrowing say eight hundred thousand dollars it's such a lot of money right the the budget might be eight hundred thousand might have saved the deposit etc etc it's such a lot of money and Mm. they're going surely i can get what i want surely Mm. they're they're waging a one-man war against (laughs) the market (laughs) we have ever had a student that just could not he just would not he just thought it was just outrageous how yeah. much property cost and we just had to keep saying to him it is what it is you just need to get your head around that's it you because can't it change it you can't influence it he said he's been about five years fighting that war and it's like and prices <laughs> have been rising while he's been fighting the one-man war and it's like you've got to get over that hurdle it's like so you got to get over the hurdle of okay it is what it is or at times you've got to get over the hurdle of actually limiting yourself because of your comfort zone as opposed to or because you want to avoid paying lenders mortgage insurance or, and this is something Chris talks about a lot in terms of this, sometimes if you can leverage up into or you can sort of, you can actually leapfrog up into a better price bracket, which gives you better options and better long-term options mm. at buying a better quality property or in a better quality area, but by, by paying a little bit of lenders mortgage insurance, sometimes there's a case for that. And it's all about affordability and it's all about a whole other bunch of stuff. You've got to, we're not encouraging people to spend more than they can afford. But but by going but it through that. Your mind. It's, that's it's it. That's opening your mind and exploring. Yeah. So by going through that exercise and understanding the risk isn't in how much you borrow, it's what you buy with that money that you borrow. That's mm. where the risk is. And so by limiting, um, you know, limiting your thinking around that before you've actually educated yourself you can and often will shoot yourself in the foot and cost yourself a lot more money in the long term. And so that's sort of, you know, that, that first P, the price P, is such a big hurdle, um, you know, and, and such an important part of the process for anybody who's wanting to buy a property, whether it's investment or as, as their own home. Mm, yeah. Right. Well, on that. Um, if anyone wants to do the rest of the, the workshop, I'm going to stick the workshop link in the notes because, we, as I said, we will be running one at the end of November and we're going to be releasing this episode sometime in November. So thanks for your time, Megan. It's been great to get a um, no, Of course. And great to talk to you without actually seeing you. I, I, I know. <laughs> I love the podcast, but I, I really miss the, uh, the, the interpersonal connection and carry on. 
the face. Well, because, of course, for anyone listening who hasn't actually tuned into our We Do a Wednesday Night Facebook Live, although we're not going to be continuing that forever because you and I are going to start our own podcast just for first home buyers. Um, <laughs> but for the moment, Facebook Live on Home Buyer Academy AUS, uh, 7.30 Sydney time, Wednesday nights. Uh, for the foreseeable future, there's lots of videos on there for people who want to jump on as well and have a look at our live Q&As. Thanks for coming. Perfect. Lovely. Thanks for having me. See you Wednesday night. See you then. <laughs> Bye. Please join us for our next episode. We've got Amanda Farmer coming back to join us. Amanda is a strata lawyer. She's also the podcast host of Your Strata Property. What we're talking about is pets in strata. Now, recently in New South Wales, the Supreme Court, there was a ruling that uh, blanket bans on pests in strata is basically not allowed. So what does that mean? Does that mean that all pets are allowed? What sort of controls... Are owners, corporations and strata committees able to impose when it comes to pets and other things for that matter? Because you're buying in a building, every building has bylaws, every building needs a level of control in order to preserve harmony and a good environment for everybody. What is reasonable? What is not reasonable? And what are the implications for owners, corporations that do want to control what goes on in their buildings. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first-home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.